This is Inside Friartown. Welcome to the Inside Friartown podcast. I'm your host, Mike DeMars. And joining me today is a former member of the Providence College men's basketball team and the current director of player development for the Dallas Mavericks, God Sham God. Sham, how old were you when you first started playing basketball? Um, I first started playing basketball when I was 13 years old. I was born in Brooklyn. I moved to Harlem when I was 10 years old. Uh, when I lived in Brooklyn, I used to do a lot of uh, boxing and wrestling because my uh, father used to train boxers. And then when I moved to Harlem, um, I, I met a guy named Ali Moore, rest in peace. Everybody knows him. Black Widow. He played on the N1 tours. And he, uh, we became good friends. And he took me to a park called Rucker Park, which everybody knows the famous Rucker Park. Uh, I never, I never seen, I never really watched basketball up until that point. And I went up there, and it was like, it was like a movie up there. It was like superheroes, like. The street ball players was like, you know, they had so much fame, so much notoriety, and everybody loved them. So, you know, of course, you know, it caught my eye as a young kid. And then from that day on, I just started playing basketball. A number of NBA greats have been quoted as saying that you had the greatest handle they ever saw. What did you do growing up that enabled you to have so much success? My first team I played on, I was just like a defensive player. I didn't really know how to dribble. Like I said, I didn't know how to play. I used to grab the ball and run to the basket all the time. And everybody's like, you got to dribble, you got to dribble. And I was like, I am, I'm going to the basket. And they're like, no, you got to put this ball, the ball on the floor. And I think because of all the discipline and boxing growing up, I just became obsessed with, with dribbling the basketball because I didn't know how to do it. So I just like worked endlessly every night. Like I used to practice dribbling for like eight hours a day. It'd be like two hours in the morning, go to school, come from school, go to the park, practice dribbling. And then I'll actually play. And then as I got older, and I used to um, watch, I, I bought this tape called Below the Rim. And it had uh, all the great point guards, Pistol Pete, Tiny Archibald, Earl Monroe. It even had, the funny thing is, it, it even had uh, Ernie D on there. Ernie D was throwing like passes from half court and stuff like that. And Tiny Archibald was dribbling. So I just became so fascinated with dribbling. And I used to always get the tapes and watch everybody's signature move. And I used to always just practice, like, everybody moves just so I could learn everybody move. And then I just put it into my game. And speaking of signature moves, take us through how you created your signature move, appropriately named the Sham God. Um, it, kind of, it happened, like, kind of by accident. I was trying to do another move, and I had lost the ball. And then when I lost the ball, the defender was trying to run to the ball, which was Michael Dickerson. And I had snatched it back with the opposite hand. And then... Um, I used to watch a lot of film, and I used to practice every night in uh, PC gym with Courtney Wright. And we used to just practice the move over and over and over and over again. And then by the time I got to the uh, NCAA tournament, you know, I kind of had it down packed. I had tried it in the Big East tournament. And a lot of people don't know that's the, that's the first time I tried to do it was in the Big East tournament. And that's when I lost the ball. And, and because I, I studied so much of dribblers, I used to watch film in slow motion just so I could get my footwork down pack and my hand and eye coordination down pack. And then after that, by the time I got to the NCAA, I had perfected it and, you know, the rest is history. People don't realize how much footwork is actually involved in the move. Yeah, that's what people see. People get caught up in the hands and the move is actually, without the footwork, the, moves, the move wouldn't work, period. That's, that's what I try to teach young kids. Like, 
you know, dribbling, you look at great dribblers, they all got great footwork. And, you know, uh, dribbling, because, you know, dribbling is all about angles and misdirection and stuff like that. Why did you choose to attend Providence College? Uh, when I was in high school, people that know me from New York, uh, Bobby, Bobby Gonzalez coached at a fame high school called Talentine University. It was like the number one team in the country when I was growing up, and I wanted to go to Talentine and uh, Bobby Gonzalez was recruiting me in the eighth grade. So, you know, me and him already had a relationship. So when he got the assistant coach job at, at Providence, he already knew my family and stuff like that. So it was, it was like a no brainer for me. And then when I got up, then when I was going there, you know, all my friends said they was going to go like Corey Wright, Jamel Thomas, Derek Brown. So I already knew them before I got there. So I just thought it would be good. And then I wanted to stay close to home so my family could see me play. Which Big East opponents did you always look forward to playing against? I look forward to playing against Georgetown because everybody used to always talk about how good their defense was and how they liked the press. And you know, I remember the first game I played against them, Jason Reynolds was like, man, you know, you can't be dribbling because they be trapping and they press. And I was like, man, don't worry about it. I was like, just give me the ball and y'all just go over half court. I'll get it over half court. And that was like one of my best games every time I played against Georgetown. And then me and Iverson had like a little rivalry because I knew him before then and Victor Page. So... That game I got the most for. And Syracuse is one of the games I got most for, too, because it was between Providence and Syracuse. Uh, Every time I played against Syracuse, I wanted to play good. Taking it back to 1997, what was the mindset of the team heading into the famous matchup against Arizona in the lead eight in the NCAA tournament? I mean, it was the same mindset we had all year. I mean, you know, like, and our team was so many, we had so many personalities on our team. So everybody on our team was felt like they was a man and felt like they could do things at any time. So that's why I think the season was kind of up and down. And then once we hit our stride and we all worked together, we just felt we could beat anybody. Like no matter what seed we came in, like we didn't care about playing Duke. We didn't care about playing Marquette. We didn't care about playing Chattanooga or even Arizona. We always felt we was the better team that the only how we could lose if we beat ourselves. So, you know, coming into that game, no, we thought we was, we thought we was going to the final four for sure. Looking back at that game in hindsight, now that you have so much experience in the game, how would you drop the final play in regulation against Arizona, and who takes the final shot? Uh, I think the last shots I, w- I was drawn up now for me or Jamel Thomas. I wouldn't have took the ball out. I would have had uh, Corey take the ball out, pass it to me, and I could have drove to the basket, or you know Jamel Thomas could have hit the shot. But even but it goes back to the, the play before that because the play before that. I had four fouls. I had got a steal, and I could have drove, and I pulled up. And that play, that play, I wish I had back all the time because you know I wish I would have drove. Even if, even if they, if it had been an offensive foul, it would, it would have been on the refs. So either I went to the free throw line, or they just let me go to the basket so, so they could take the ball out. So that play, I look at, and I always wish I could have that play back. Do you still keep in touch with your teammates from Providence? Yes, I just spoke to Jamel Thomas yesterday. I mean, I speak to Corey Wright all the time. I mean, when I came, when I first came back to PC, I lived with Corey, right? So, yeah, I mean, you know, we all close. I spoke to Ruben, Derek Brown, even Coach Gillen. I just spoke to Coach Gillen uh, two days ago. They're, they're going to be family for the rest of my life. You made it to the NBA playing for the Washington Wizards, but you also played professionally overseas for a number of seasons. What did you learn from that experience, and what country did you enjoy the most? From overseas, I, I just learned how to take my time with things and Mainly, I learned how to take my time in life. When I was at PC, you know, life, you know, life, as everybody knows, Americans, our life is, is kind of fast. Like, we want everything instant, we want instant gratification, we want things to go. You know, even when we order our food, everything is like, give me my food to go. 
And when I got overseas, it was more of, you know, like I used to go to Starbucks and before I got overseas, I never had a had a hot chocolate in Starbucks. And then when I got overseas, it just, it just helped me slow down and think about life and think about what's important and just continue to work. And the best place I played in that I liked the most was uh, China. Of course, everybody knows that I was in China for a number of years. I got MVP twice there. You know, I played with Yao Ming and against Yao Ming too. So China was like, the most impactful for me because of the people and I was alone most of the time so I got to really get in touch with myself and plan for the future and things that I wanted in the future and how I wanted my life to turn out. And why was it important for you to come back to Providence and get your degree? Because when I left Providence I promised my mother that I would finish my degree if she let me go to the NBA. You know, of course everybody know I went to the NBA. You know, just as a man I just always wanted to have my degree because you know, I got young kids so I just, I just always wanted if I'm going to tell them to get their degree, I always wanted to have my degree. I never wanted to be the parent that pushed something on my kids that I couldn't do. And I just thought it was good for me. You've worked in the NBA for a number of years, and you helped Ed Cooley's staff for a few seasons as well. What are the primary differences between coaching college players and working with NBA players? Um, I would say for most people, because my situation, my situation is always different. Uh, I would say for most people, the, the things, uh, the situation would be different because of, um, in college, kids tend to listen to you more because they're trying to reach their dreams. And then in the NBA, players feel like they know because they already making their dreams happen before you got there. So most of the players are used to a routine in the NBA, used to the people they listen to and things like that. So it takes a lot for you to kind of break their circle of trust and for them to believe in what you're saying because, you know, it's hard for you to go talk to somebody and tell them, hey, you should do this when they didn't pay $160 million for doing what they've been doing already. You know, my situation is unique because uh, most people I meet, whether it's in college or NBA, you know, um, even if I, even if I admire them, nine times a ten, they admire me as you know, Shamrod as a player and stuff like that. So most players tend to listen to me and most players tend to uh, seek me out to get advice. So my situation is, is kind of is kind of a unique situation. And then I always make sure that I'm prepared and always work hard and always try to better myself as a coach, as a player development, because, you know, when people do come to me, I want to give them the right advice and I want them to be successful. You spent a lot of time with Bryce Cotton and so many Friar fans see his big numbers and the success in Australia combined with his production and exhibition games against NBA teams and wonder why an NBA team does not give him an opportunity. What are your thoughts on Bryce Cotton not playing in the NBA? Um, my, my thoughts is the same as I always told him. I, I, like I told him, like, every best player in the world is not in the NBA. You know, there's other players in the world I could play in the NBA. For sure, without a doubt. Everybody that's seen Bryce Cotton play know he can play in the NBA. You know, it's just a matter of opportunity, situation, and circumstance. You know, and he's he, he's kind of like how I was. Like, he, he was caught in circumstances that, that's out of his control. You know, and I always told him, you know, I told him, you know, no matter what, you know, you're going to make money in basketball. So just find a home. And once you find a home, just, just focus on that. Because at the end of the day, you know, basketball is here for you to use basketball and not for it to use you. So, you know, you can use it to provide for your family, to have a great life and things and, and things of that nature. And right now, you know, I speak to Cotton all the time. You know, he's, he's happy as, as he's ever been. You know, he's two-time league MVP in Australia. And, you know, they, you know, they love him over there. So he's like, he's the best player over there. 
in the country. And every time they play against NBA teams, he, he always played good. And he always do work. And even when he was in Utah, he played excellent there. You know, it's just a matter of numbers and situations. And, you know, hopefully one day that can happen, you know, but if it don't, he's still going to be a great basketball player. And every time he plays against NBA players, they know that he's an NBA player. So that's, that's the only thing that matters. You're currently working as the director of player development for the Dallas Mavericks. What is it like to work for Mark Cuban? Uh, I mean, it's great. You know, Mark Cuban is um, a great leader, you know, a great person. You know, he makes you feel like you're a part of the family. You know, he, he appreciates everybody that works for him. You know, no matter what job description they have, you know, everybody is treated with the amount of respect and loyalty that it takes to run a company. And that's why he's been successful, you know, his, his whole career. And if you watch all the things that he's doing during the pandemic and, um, the George Floyd incident and, you know, and, and through the struggle and Black Lives Matter, if you look at all the stuff that he, he's doing, he's, he's bigger than a boss. You know, he's a leader. You know, a boss push, leaders leaders pull, you know, and every situation, he's always on the front line and he's pulling everybody together and trying to make things better, you know, whether it's for the Dallas Mavericks or whether it's for this country, you know, or whether it's just people around him in his life. So, you know, he's, he's just a great person to work for and, you know, I'm I'm glad that, you know, that I work for him, but I'm glad that we also have a, a, a real genuine friendship, you know, from from me talking to him about my sneakers, to him giving his input about my sneakers, for him coming on my, my podcast, you know, anything that I have going on, you know, he's always a part of, you know, so it's bigger than uh, employee and owner relationship. Is there an NBA player today who reminds you of how you played? Uh, I mean, it's a couple, you know, it's like, you know, it's a couple of everybody I see sprinkled. And these people are, I, I know because they have told me, you know, like when I first met Chris Paul, you know, he was like, man, you know, it's, it's crazy I'm meeting you because, you know, uh, me and my boys, we used to always watch you and Tim Hardaway. If it wasn't for you and Tim Hardaway, I would never play basketball. I would never want to dribble. You know, and when you hear that from Hall of Famers and things like that, your job or, or your impact in basketball is good, you know. Of course, I wanted to play 20 years in the NBA, but the most important thing I want to do is inspire people. And when I see Russell Westbrook do the move and give me a shout out and say, hey, it's the Shamgar move, or I see Kyrie Irving on documents, documentaries talking about me and Dame Lillard, it's a humbling feeling. And, you know, and when I meet, when I meet these people, you know, I could, I could call them my friends now because I met them, you know, because of the Shamgar move, because of the way I play. And when I watch players in the NBA today, it's, it's not many point guards that don't play like I play. You know, when I when I came out, you know, uh, if you dribbled a lot, it was like a crime. It was like, oh, man, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, the point guard can't be the leading scorer or the point guard can't be this. And now when you look at the NBA, if you don't dribble a lot, if you don't have a creative mind, you can't really play nowadays. It's refreshing and it's great to see that, you know, some people would consider me, uh, I was ahead of my time. And, and that's okay because, I'm still in basketball and I'm still making a contribution to basketball. How are NBA players coming into the game today similar or dissimilar to when you play in the league? It's similar, but in a different way because players now understand who they are as players and have a lot of ownership in, in their abilities. You know, when I, when I was playing, the NBA was like so far away in kids' minds when I was, when I was playing. It was almost like if you made it to the NBA, oh man, he was so lucky or you were like one out of a dozen. But now in this generation, you know, uh, kids could be in the sixth grade and they could know they're going to the NBA and, and get there, you know, because 
because the whole dynamics of it is set up for you to make it. You know, when I was coming up, it was more set up for, hey, I know you're playing basketball, but, you know, you need to be thinking about being a doctor or police or a fireman or this or that. Don't put all your hopes in basketball. Where now, you know, the families are different. Now you have grandmothers, aunts, fathers, uncles, cousins at the game. You know, when I was coming up, I was going to games by myself. Like, my mother didn't see me play, so I played the McDonald's or American. You know, now it's just more of awareness. And because of social social media, everything is happening in the moment. So you're getting everything in real time. So, you know, your investment is totally different in the player now than it was when I was coming up. That's why you have so many trainers and so many, you know, it's almost like a, like training is like a new job now. You know, when I was coming up, I, I never had a trainer for basketball. You know, my, my assistant coach used to pass me the ball. Or I never had a player development guy when I got in the NBA. It was the fourth coach giving me to pass me the ball, but not even telling me drills, just rebound. Every kid that grows up playing basketball dreams about not only making it to the NBA, but also getting their signature shoe. This month, Puma released the Legacy Sham God. What was your reaction when you found out you were getting your own shoe? Uh, it was, you know, because this was like a two-year process, so I was excited. I was real excited. I was happy. I was overwhelmed because, you know, even if I played 20 years in the NBA, I, I don't know if I'd have gotten my own shoe or not. Hopefully I would have, but I can't say that, but for me to have my own shoe now is amazing and it's exciting. You know, it's um, it's a give and take because, you know, the the times that we're in right now, you know, and stuff that the world is going through. You know, I'm happy that I have I, I have a shoe, but you know, it's bittersweet because of the things that's going on in the world. It's it's hard to be like overly excited because you know we have bigger issues in the world, as far as race and as far as the pandemic. So I'm very aware of that, and you know, but I'm also aware that you know God is in the business of blessings. So I'm I'm always going to receive His blessings and always be excited for every blessing I get. And you know, like I said, at the same time, I just turn turn it to a positive by you know giving proceeds, you know, uh, co- combining. We share for life, you know, organization that I'm a part of that we, that they, you know, we feed the community, we do programs for the inner city kids and the housing. And, you know, along with my shoe, we're giving out 2,000 masks to, to grant projects because they lead, they lead the uh, cases of COVID-19 in New York City and deaths. And, you know, we're also working on a food pantry for Marcy Project where Jay-Z is from. And, you know, it's just, it's just a, it's just a, a combination of efforts to just make make my community better and other communities better, other black and brown communities better in the world. And when I have people in my corner like Jay-Z and Mark Cuban, you know, I, I, feel, I feel the sky's the limit. As you look ahead 10 years down the road, where do you see yourself and what would be your dream job? 10 years from now, hopefully I could be a GM I could own some businesses. Uh, I could uh, uplift my community uh, with a lot of programs to help kids, not only basketball players, but to show kids that there's so many jobs in basketball. And, and that's what kids don't really know. Like, they think it's all about basketball, making it to the NBA. But, you know, like I tell kids now, if you got a friend that's good in basketball and you're really not that good in basketball, then focus on being his agent or focus on being a trainer because – at the end of the day, as long as you're in the NBA, it's a dream job because, yeah, the players might get treated a little bit different, but on a, most of all, everybody that works in the NBA get treated the same. You know, the NBA probably get, the players get treated different because of popularity, but as far as the NBA as a whole, as a structure, 
they do an amazing job as an organization by treating everybody, whether it's the referees, whether it's the trainers, the player development, assistant coaches, everybody is treated so amazingly, you know, so it's still a dream job. It's not just a dream job because you play, you know, it's other aspects of the NBA that you could be in, whether it's player development on the court, whether it's player development in, in relationships and uh, making sure the players are fine. And it's just other departments. And I don't think kids really know that or understand that. They they focus just on, oh, I need to be a player. I need to be a player. But if you look at the stuff that LeBron James is doing where, you know, his best friends is, is one of his best friends is agent. One of his best friends run his company. So, like, you still cause you can still live that dream. It don't only have to be as a player. And, and I just want to bring awareness to kids to understand, like, that's why you need to study in school. You need to do your work because there's other jobs that's just as amazing. And you have the same type of feeling. And finally, what's the best thing about being a friar? Just the people, you know, the fans, Rhode Island, Providence. For me, the best part, like I said, is the fans. Like, I mean, I meet Friar fans all over the world. There's so many Friar fans in, in business and, and sports that I meet that I didn't even know that was, that was, that was Friar fans, you know? And it's just, it's just amazing when I see somebody and they're like, man, PC Friar, though, when I meet the fans, like, the fans embrace me so much, whether I was playing or not playing. And, and that's like, that, that like blew my mind. Like, when I came back, and to finish my degree, I had so much love from the fans in, in Providence. And I will always say Providence fans are the best fans. And I always tell kids, like, I know if you're not looking at it, you need to look at Providence because, like, if you do good in Providence, you you you, you could do anything in Providence for the rest of your life. And PC is really a family. You know, Bob Driscoll, Steve Knapp, you know, uh, Coach Cooley and the rest of the staff, you know, when they brought me back to Providence, it was straight a family, you know. They did something for me at a time when nobody could do for me. You know, like, you know, Ed Cooley did, did something for me that nobody could do. He gave me a second life at basketball. And him, Bob Driscoll, Steve Matt, they helped, they helped me get back on my purpose in life, you know, which is what I'm doing now. And I can never repay them enough for, for, for sparking that second life in me, you know, and I wear a PC on my heart everywhere. I know you have your own podcast called Talk to God. Where can Friar fans check out the podcast and where can they follow you on social media? Uh, I'm at God Sham God number 12. And then I have um, a, U- a YouTube station called Sham God Crossover to God. And then, you know, we have um, other things, Legacy, Legacy Sham God. And then um, Talk to God is on YouTube, it's on Tidal. Is on all the mainstreams. And then my Twitter is at the real Sham Guard. Sham, thanks so much once again for taking the time. Best of luck in the upcoming NBA playoffs, and we hope to see you in Friartown soon. Yes, thank you, and Friartown PC for life. Thanks for listening to this bonus edition of the Inside Friartown podcast. Please download, like, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app. And as always, go Friars! Go Friars!